Good evening, everyone. My name is Alexander Campos. I'm the Executive Director and Curator of the Center for Book Arts. And on behalf of the board and staff, I'm very pleased to have you all listening here at the Center for Book Arts. Um, I just want to say a few words. Um, first of all, I'm very grateful that we, we were able to host the event tonight that was organized by so many organizations at the Vega, you name it, more small editions, one more. I was like, <laughs> a lot of wonderful people put this event together. I want to thank Diane, and in particular, Palacio, for helping transfer the event to, from the New York Public Library to the Center of Book Arts. That was a tremendous effort. And of course, I really want to thank the artists speaking tonight. Of course, I wanted to tell you more about them, but I really want to thank Tony um, White, who I know for quite some time now. Uh, Tony and I met back in 2006 or five uh, when he organized a wonderful exhibition that was called Production, Not Reproduction. That was an exhibition that we had here at the Center for Book Arts. We still have a few issues of the catalog left. And of course, the featured uh, artist likes to be a Marsh and so and, 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 uh, Rebecca Michaels and so forth. So it's a wonderful catalog that he put together in conjunction with this exhibition that documents the history of offset printing in the 70s and so forth. And it really was informational, uh, instructional, instructional um, exhibition and catalog for me as a director of the Central Book Arts. I had just started, didn't really know much about the offset printing history, and so it was really a way, great way of instruction for me to learn about the artist books in the offset world. And so I'm grateful for uh, Tommy for that. I'm grateful for him to this panel together tonight. And I'm so happy that even 10 years later, this information, this exhibition, these artists are so relevant to us today. So thank you very much again for all of you for being here tonight. And of course, I think half of you are here. We have like 60 people here. We expect 80 or 90 people. So we might have some people come in and just take in those little seats. So please forgive them. But the joint ones, they go. Oh, we're gonna, if you have questions at the end, we have this mic to record the questions. So we'll try to pass them around to you. All right. So, um, so, good evening, everyone. My name is Diane Diaz-Cafazio, and I'm so happy to see all of you here tonight. Um, thank you for coming to Women in a Golden Age of Artist Works. <laughs> um, also, I just want to thank you all for your patience with our slightly delayed start tonight. There were um, apparently some related issues with the elevator, so thank you for your patience and understanding. And also, thank you for being so flexible as we shifted locations at almost the very last moment. Um, tonight, we celebrate women and printing and artist books. And we would not be here without the support of our sponsors, our hosts, the Center for Book Arts, Small Editions Artist Books, <laughs> the New York chapter of the American Printing History Association, Beta Five News Theater chapter from the Pratt Institute School of Information, and Rare Book School. This roundtable, <laughs> this roundtable is presented as part of Rare Book School's public event series. Rare Book School, based at the University of Virginia, provides continuing education opportunities for students from all disciplines and skill levels to study the history of written, printed, and digital materials with leading scholars and professionals in the field. Week-long courses are held at major institutions, including the Broiler Club, Indiana University in Bloomington, Yale University, University of Pennsylvania, the Free Library of Philadelphia, Amherst College, and debuting this week, 
the history of artist books since 1950, taught by Tony White at Thomas J. Watson Library, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. During every RBS session, an evening public educational event like this is offered, bringing students and local bibliophile communities together. Our speakers, Cynthia Marsh, Rebecca Michaels, and Patty Smith, are important printers in high-speed rotary offset lithographic printed artist books. Tonight's program will begin with a conversation about their work and influences, and as Alex mentioned, we'll conclude with a short audience Q&A, and I'll be running around this microphone. Tonight's roundtable was conceived of and will be moderated by Tony White. Tony is the Florence and Herbert Irving Associate Chief Librarian at Thomas J. Watson Library at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and it is my great honor to introduce him. Ladies and gentlemen, our panel. So, uh, the focus of this panel is really going to be on the roundtable discussion, but again, I'd like to thank uh, Alex Campos for accommodating uh, this panel on extremely short notice. Finding a, an open space in New York City with two weeks' notice is incredibly difficult. Uh, Diane and I called a lot of places uh, in a 24-hour time span, and this was the only place we could find, and this is the perfect place for this roundtable to happen. I'd also like to thank Diane for helping with all of the administrative details, working with the speakers, working with the venues, uh, arranging for uh, gratis uh, sound support for the evening, which we are incredibly thankful for. So that we're well mic'd and so that we can record the session. So a little bit about uh, why we're doing this. Uh, as Alex mentioned, um, as part of the production, not reproduction uh, exhibition that I did a number of years ago, I interviewed about 15 or 16 offset artist printers who were involved in the production of offset printed artist books, who learned how to operate offset presses, which are incredibly technical. It's not, they're less forgiving, I would say, than a letter press. Uh, and they learned this in the, pursuit of, pursuit of printing their own works, but also printing uh, books for other artists. Uh, and in, in alignment with the course that's being taught this week, uh, the first one at Rare Book School on, on contemporary artist books, uh, it seemed like a great opportunity to have a discussion among offset printers. So I reached out to these three who were willing to participate this evening. So I have some prepared questions. Uh, well, we'll go through the questions, and then at the end, again, we'll have Q&A, and we'll see where the conversation takes us. So we'll start with Cindy. And the first question is, what was your first experience working in a print shop or your experience with offset printing? Um, I first um, thought about offset printing when I was introduced to the work of Ed Boucher I saw 26 gasoline stations. Can you hear me? Um, about a year after it was produced, so that would have been 1967, and I was a sophomore in college. Um, and I was a printmaking major. So, when I saw his books, something went off inside of me, and I thought, I want to do this work. I want to do work just like Ed Boucher. <laughs> so I figured I, I got to learn offset printing. So um, I went home for the summer 
and which is Boston. I was going to school in Philadelphia, and um, I went to every print shop I could find and tried to BS my way into a job. I no more knew where the on switch was on any offset press than anything about it. And as I said to Tony, this may be pertinent, may not, but the Me Too movement was certainly alive when I was looking for that early offset job. Come by the print shop around 6.30 after everybody's gone, and we'll take a look at the equipment and see how you do. It's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, um, and I'm sure my colleagues have had very similar situations. It's part of our workforce story in a man's field. Anyway, so I did get a job. I got a job actually in the suburbs of Boston in a garage behind the printer's house. And I ran a multi-lift kind of, and was belittled and put down the whole summer by the other offset printer who was very resentful that a female college student would come in for the summer and do what he was doing. So I went home every night and woke up in the morning and went back, but I did learn how to run an offset press, so that was it. All right. <laughs> Did you want me to repeat the question? No. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, I knew nothing of, about Offset and did not see Ed Ruscha's uh, book. In fact, I was a printmaking, um, I was in graduate school for printmaking, and um, there was a printing shop behind my house where I lived in Morton outside of Philadelphia. I had no idea what that meant. I thought, well, it must have something to do with printmaking, and I went in. So my, my um, experience with the Me Too movement was I asked for a job, and they said, well, we only have one bathroom, so we can't hire you. <laughs> I thought, okay, but then this put it in my mind that maybe I could find a printing job, and I kind of walked around Philadelphia, and I found a nice guy named Mr. Murphy who accepted me as a gal Friday, and I could make the plates, but I wasn't allowed to run the press, but I got to watch him running the press. Mm. Um, and then I went to my huge Irish family's house. My uncle John said, oh, well, if you want to be a printer, my friend's father works in a printing company in Darby, which is also outside of Philadelphia. We are all Philadelphians in some way. Um, just a note to Ben Franklin. <laughs> First printing person in Philadelphia. So we, um, so I met Fred, his father, and um, he was a very nice man. And it was very interesting because a, man, um, a retired professor from the University of Pennsylvania owned this company. And he had purchased out-of-print books for years, and he had a huge warehouse full of out-of-print books. It's the first place where I saw Patti Smith's first book of poems, not me the other Patty Smith. And he would take them apart, or have people take them apart, and they had an iTech machine, which was very simple, uh, that made the plates, and then we ran um, AB Dix there, which is a little printing press. And Fred taught everybody how to run the press, and everybody was a woman. He, the, the university professor was very interested in the fact that Darby was full of women who either didn't finish high school and could only work in a hamburger joint, or uh, women who had 
uh, their children had left home, they didn't need benefits, they just wanted to work, and they were skillful and they were smart. And so he hired mostly women who's, who were in their late 50s for, uh, to be printers, and Fred taught everyone how to print. I was the exception. There was one other girl who was maybe just out of high school. First he had me doing paste up, which I was never very good at. And I just kept saying, I want to run the press. And so I printed these out-of-print wonderful books. It, it was difficult not to stand there and read them. Um, and he made his, his retirement living by selling to libraries. Uh, I did that all through graduate school. And then um, while I was in graduate school, my mentor, Lois Johnson, I don't know if anyone knows Lois Johnson. Uh, she was a wonderful, she is a wonderful person. Unfortunately, she's very ill, but she um, encouraged me to do offset at school at the University of the Arts, which was then PCA, Philadelphia College Bar. Eugene Feldman, famous uh, pioneer in offset as an artist medium, had just <coughs> passed away, and she had worked with him and wanted to keep that legacy going. And so we brought a, an old Davidson press up in literally in buckets. And um, another fellow there put it together. And then I asked Fred if he would come and teach me how to run this press. That was a fellow at the Darby Printing Company. And um, he didn't really know how to run this old Davidson because for years we, we were putting the pressure on in the wrong way, uh, which I didn't learn until many years later. But it was held together with rubber bands and bobby pins, typical girl way of repairing things. And Lois and I worked to get that press going. And we printed things like this, which were pretty wild. So that was how I began. I just um, found it was just fate, I guess. <laughs> and my relationship with offset printing started much earlier. So my next door neighbor when I was growing up was an offset printer. And when I was probably 12 years old, they hired me to hand collate the Volkswagen parts price list. <laughs> That's a book about this thick. So it would take the entire summer to do that. So there was always presses humming in the background. My father sold offset presses. So press stuff was always in my blood. And it wasn't until I was in undergraduate school at the Art Institute in Chicago that they were offering a class taught by a graduate student named Conrad Gleber um, on a small ATF Cheat 17 press. So I took it one semester, and it's interesting that we all learned by hit or miss. So what happened to me was at the end of the semester, they said, um, we need somebody to print materials for the school, for the Art Institute school. And everybody's going on vacation. Do you want to have that job? I thought, of course I can do that. Well, <laughs> I was, it was like learn as you go, sink or swim kind of deal. And thank goodness they were so pleased with just having multiples that they didn't care that this was one color and number 500 was a completely different color or maybe a funky registration and stuff like that. So I pretty much taught myself, like you two did, how to run the press. There wasn't sort of somebody saying, yes, do this or do that. It was like, oops. <laughs> pull that one out of gears, you know, or what happens when you press that button, and what happens when you run it through the press multiple times. So it was at the Art Institute that I first was exposed 
to access to a press. And that was doing prompts? Yes. Free crackers. Yeah. So I not only did posters and postcards, but also the newspaper for the school, which was called Crackers, and we renamed it Crumbs. And we really, again, still learning how to use the press, and so every week it was a different format, maybe a different color or whatever. So, so you can see issues of Crumbs with a stack like this at the MoMA Library if you're interested in seeing these publications. Oh, thank yeah. you. Uh, so we'll go back to Cindy. Um, what other presses or press shops uh, did you work at that were pivotal or influential in your early career? Did you ask me this question before? <laughs> <laughs> I just asked you where you started, but this yeah. is like, you know, like, so maybe talk a little bit about oh, the working with, like, Joan Lyons and setting up the Visual Studies Workshop Press, or maybe a little bit about setting up the press at the Women's Building in Los Angeles, or if there were other significant... Um, after I really um, embraced offset printing. Um, and my love of offset printing is really about the flatness of offset. I want everything to be flat, like the industrial world. And these are some of my early offset prints of very mundane subjects. This was an apartment, things in my apartment. So, um, I got a master's degree in offset printing from Ro Rochester Institute of Technology with a kind of split MFA in the arts. And it was, uh, it was a little difficult because the art school, the whole time I was there at every critique graduate school, the whole discussion was, well, is offset really art? <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that was that. But um, <laughs> uh, while I was there, a new school opened, and it was the Visual Studies Workshop, which many of you, I'm sure, have heard of or have been to. And it's in Rochester also, and it was started by uh, Nathan Lyons and his wife, Joan. Nathan was spearheaded it, but Joan was the one who also fell in love with Offset. And she was... Um, maybe eight years my senior, and she was a faculty member and the, the founder of school, and I was a student. So I wouldn't really say we were on equal footing, but she knew I could run an offset press, and she had bought a AB, Dick or multi, I can't remember what she, what she bought, but I went over and helped her get it started. And, um, then after RIT, I moved to Los Angeles, and Sheila de Brettville, who was one of the founders of the Women's Building, knocked on my apartment door. I didn't have a car, I didn't have a phone, and I lived in L.A., so it was kind of a weird, <laughs> weird existence. But she knew I was there for some reason and came and said, do you want to come and print at the Women's Building? So I said yes, and I went there, and um, I taught offset printing and worked with Sheila on that. And um, we started a place called the Women's Graphic Center within the Women's Building in Los Angeles. Uh, it's interesting how our lives have overlapped, but we haven't really had much contact with each other throughout. Um, my fault for not uh, being more 
friendly, outgoing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it your fault? It's always my fault. No, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, You've heard the guilt. I read that. The book in, of neglect. In this book. I neglected to contact them. So, um, in um, some of the overlap is I went to the Rochester, to Rochester, and I took a course with Joan Lyons. Uh, in the 70s, um, she was teaching summer workshops, and I was, at that point, starting my thesis in offset lithography as an artist medium, uh, and I thought, well, this is a place where I can work a little bit more. That was my thesis, too. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd brought it. <laughs> so, um, Joan Lyons showed me lots of new tricks, it was great. And I also visited RIT and there was a very tall gentleman who was sort of the research head, I don't know if you know who that was. But um, I'd, after I finished my thesis, I was asked to write a article based on the thesis for the World Print Council, do you remember that organization? The printmaking uh, organization in San Francisco. Oh yeah. So I wrote an article and then they invited me to a conference that they were having and I was asked this question about fugitive inks. That was a good TV program, the fugitive. <laughs> um, so the fugitive inks, I didn't know the answer. They said, well, you know, how do you know these inks are light fast and you're using them for art? You know, and they were all printmakers in the audience. And uh, this very tall, lovely gentleman from RIT who'd met me once before, raised his hand and said, I think I can help you with the answer to that question, Patty. And he gave me a whole, he gave a whole talk on offsettings being exactly the same as everybody else's inks, and there's nothing wrong with them. So <laughs> it was great, because he had actually invented some of them, so it was, it was terrific. Yeah, so that was yeah. some of the overlap. But that article then uh, led me, uh, well, Ed Kolker, who we all, both all three know, um, he read the article and about me being at the conference and called my uh, litho instructor, who was his friend in Philadelphia, because Ed is also from Philadelphia, um, asked him, would I be interested in a job? And I had been searching for a job for a year, and I went to SUNY Purchase, where Ed was the dean, and I, he opened the doors to this print shop that hadn't been used in several years and said, all this can be yours. <laughs> okay, it was a huge print shop. In the meantime, I had been working in a print shop, then running a multi-lith, and that's what SUNY Purchase had, much to the amusement of the male printers in the shop um, who kind of watched me fumble along with a, the multi-lith, because I'd only run a Davidson before that, and an AB Dick. And then I knew how to run the multi-list, so that was great. And they also had a Solna, which was a very, which was a large press, 20, 20 like 25 or something like that. And um, neither of them worked, so I had repairmen come and repair them and show me some things. The Solna, I'd never run a press that size, but the fellow repairman, he taught me how to run it. And most of my job was um, teaching students how to run the press, how to use offset as an artist medium, and uh, I did print some visiting artists' works, but mostly it was um, teaching offset. I'm doing my own work on presses, of course. What's the question again? So the question <laughs> is, uh, so what other presses or press shops did you work in that were pivotal or influential? Oh, okay. okay. So I worked, um, what's really interesting is how, yeah, we all know the same people. So. 
Carl Sesto, Michael Beacott, Chuck Gershwin, they were all at, at a different part of the school at RIT when you were there. And then, and then at Chuck, York, yeah. yeah. And so it's interesting seeing how they all intertwine. Um, so I went to the Art Institute after having worked as a graphic designer in Chicago for a number of years and had coerced, coerced uh, different offset printers to throw on books for me at the end of a job or something like that. And then decided I just didn't want to do design anymore. I really wanted to go back um, and be able to teach and to have my hands on a press again. So I found out that the uh, Tyler School of Art had uh, the Tyler Offset Workshop where they had uh, received a large Ford Foundation grant to, and this is what's kind of funny that um, they were really sort of battling the ideas offset art. And so we had Chuck Close come in and we did a print for him on this press. So anyway, let me start. I go to, the, I go to uh, Tyler School of Art as a graduate student and start working on um, printing these images for this Ford Foundation um, portfolio. And we have people like Chuck Close come in and he makes a print and it's beautiful. We do it on red paper. He thinks about it and says, mm, on the other side, you have to say it was offset printed because it has a different value when it's offset printed than when it's stone lithography or whatever. So that was kind of an interesting thing for me. And so being at the Art, uh, not the Art Institute, at Tyler School of Art, um, we were really um, doing much more reproduction work. Um, even though I had access to the press and I was having a lot of fun making my own work, I was also asked to do uh, real high-quality reproduction stuff. So we had a magazine called Quiver um, that had 300-line duotones. We were doing color separations ourselves. So everything was being done except for the binding there. And that's where I really learned how to do reproduction printing. You know, to really match colors and use a densitometer and do all that kind of stuff. But what was interesting is the idea that um, if you have a offset press in a printmaking area, people are going to have a different attitude than when it's in photo. So when you're talking about flatness, what I was interested in was multiplicity. I was interested in the idea of distribution, that I could bypass any kind of a a gallery, a bookstore, or whatever, and I could distribute myself. I could print as many as I wanted to. I had complete control over the making and the distribution. So that's what was real interesting to me, was that idea of multiplicity, not just the printmakerly kind of aspect of offset printing. So just to, just to follow up on that, so when you're talking about the most multiplicity part of it, you're ta also talking about Argo? And, and some of the creative ways of distribution that you employed. Yes. So, Can you talk about that for a little bit? So I had a collaborator while I was at the Art Institute, and um, I was doing the printing of their, um, their uh, newsletter every, every week, and, which was called Crumbs. And after we both graduated, we started a magazine called Argo, which is uh, French for contemporary slang. And it was a really wonderful way to, again, keep on exploring using the press as a printmaking tool. Uh, we were, it was a great time in Chicago because the mayor's wife, Mayor Blandick, was very much for the arts. And so she was giving a lot of money to artists to support them for a whole year. So I had benefits, I was paid on a weekly basis, 
to make art. <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever. And so uh, it wasn't only just my work, but it was also printing for other artists. Uh, Robert Heineken, um, who else was coming through? A lot of other people were coming through that I was making um, some work for. And so we got money to make this magazine called Argo. And the way we would distribute it is that we had a, a mailing list, but then we would also just go through, and again, this is all pre-internet, so telephone books were really a big source of information. So we'd go through the telephone book and go, that person is going to get an issue of Argo this month. And so we would just randomly send them out to people and hoping that they would open it and you know, think, <laughs> or think, why did I get this? And so that was a really interesting way to think about distribution, not just for an audience that we knew, but an audience we knew did not know us. So, Perfect. so this is a good segue. Uh, so can you, can you talk a little bit about uh, maybe creative processes that you employed on the press? outside of just straight up work, if there's anything creative that you did or unusual outside of, you know, four color printing? I never did four color. Well, right. I, know, I, I did a few. Um, I, I was not very good at printing for other people. Mm -hmm. I, um, I always found it, I never came up to their expectations. I was not a uh, commercial printer in that way. And, um, uh, what I did do is I worked on halftones. Do you all know what a halftone is? Those of you who are, who are over 40 probably know what a halftone is. But anyway, when you're, when you're learning halftones, you try to get a 90%, 10% distribution, dot distribution, so you have the right contrast in your lift negative. And I was forever trying to get the 60-30. I wanted flat. <laughs> so I, I guess I was just always kind of a bad offset printer. And, um, and it's kind of, um, oh, what can I say? I, I don't want to put myself down, but it's kind of the way I live my life. I mean, things have their own journey. And I'm just along for the ride. So I eventually had an AB deck in my studio, and um, the AB deck and I were really close and did a lot of work together. Um, sometimes I did split fountains. Sometimes I ran it through 300 times on top of itself. Sometimes I silk screened and then ran the silk screen through, and sometimes it jammed up and I pulled it out, and that looked great. You know, it was all whatever. Um, and I feel every image that you make is meant for a certain printing process. So I printed a lot of books where. Um, the things that were most mundane and the most everyday were printed offset. The things that were historic were printed letterpress. The things that were meant to be on top were printed silkscreen. So I would put band-aids over prints, but the band-aids were printed silkscreen because it was over 
not real uh, brain science, but you know. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, uh, I just sort of went where it took me, and a lot of it came out well, and some of it was a mess, and you know, whatever. So um, at uh, SUNY Purchase, after this was after graduate school, I, gu I guess I should start in graduate school. I really took on a kind of Cindy method, and Lois Johnson was in support of that, um, just kind of layering images on top of one another and um, making additions. Uh, we also would get together as a department, and everybody would produce a print, me printing it, and they making the plate or even just the drawings for it. Um, and then at SUNY Purchase, when I had access to a larger press, when there wasn't a lot of downtime, it was pretty hectic, but I would say, well, I don't have any ideas, I'm just going to print something. And one of, when you say a creative idea, what, I had this huge copy camera at my disposal, and I guess you all know what a copy camera is, it's just this enormous camera that you take a picture of what, of something this big. And I put my childhood red dress in this camera and I made a duotone, meaning one was very flat and black and the other was very toned, that had a mezzotint screen. I don't know if that means anything. And then I just printed hundreds of them and um, looked at them and thought, what the heck am I going to do with this? I don't know. And I put it in a drawer. And then 15 years later, I made this book. <laughs> Uh, at SUNY Purchase on a little on a one of our presses, and uh, I made this book from the original larger um, red dress prints, and I did an installation with the larger prints. Uh, so that was it. Was really the offset press that and the equipment that led up to that that gave me this incentive to just do something, even if I wasn't coming up with any brilliant ideas. Um, I also worked for a place called um, Brandywine Workshop in Philadelphia, and it's a, uh, originally it did a lot of uh, offset printing and also screen printing. Uh, it was run by, it, it is run by a man named Alan Edmonds, um, and his, his, what they really do is invite artists of color and uh, different ethnic groups and uh, women to come and make prints, kind of an underserved artist community. So you say, you printed for Chuck Close, you know, he wouldn't be having Chuck Close there, he would, <laughs> but he might have um, Benny Andrews there. And um, he has quite an amazing collection. And I was a consultant, not for running the press, which was really enormous, and I had a very enormous man running that press, but I would do all the pre-press work with the artist who wouldn't know anything about offset printing. Uh, and actually, because of Alan, we bought our house where we did, and I live around the corner from <laughs> Alan, and still participate in things with them, and with my students with them. Um, so I learned a lot of really wonderful techniques, but they were very focused on it being artist prints. So we would draw on mylar, and uh, we would print from a positive plate. It was not about photography. The photography, the, the photographic part only came in the plate maker when you would expose at the actual drawing on mylar to a positive plate, and we would make all our separations by hand, much the way you would for a screen print or an etching, and really follow that path more than a more photographic color separation kind of path. And then I came to, to the University of the Arts after five years at SUNY Purchase, and um, worked with Chuck Gershwin, who Rebecca worked with, 
and we were a separation of labor. Chuck printed for the photographers and the graphic designers, and I printed for the artists, painters, sculptors, and printmakers. Um, so I'm somewhere between Rebecca and Cindy. I do know how to do four color separation, but uh, Chuck was really an expert at that, so he took over when those kinds of things were taking place. Um, and so most of my creative work came from my printmaking background and working much like a printmaker in Offset. So, yeah, working with someone like Chuck, so I go to Tyler School of Art, and they are very much about reproduction, and they're very much about learning how to do 300-line quad tones, okay, which we ended up doing for Aperture, the Dion Arbus um, magazine workbook. And so we were doing a lot of press proofing for Aperture books and stuff like that. So we're doing real high level kinds of reproduction work. And I would go, huh, but what would happen if you turn it this way? <laughs> and Chuck would go, ah! you know, so I trained him really good before you got him. And so that was what was a lot of fun, though, was that I was coming at it from a, a printmaker point of view, and I was going into a photo program that had um, a press, and they were just wanting to make photos and make exactly what they had before. And I was wanting to say, hey, let's like erase those plates and let's throw all this ink on and let's put all this different paper in. And they were not happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. So I'm working with these two guys that are definitely you know, very um, anal retentive and very much about reproduction. And I'm just like, let's throw something. Let's try something different. And it was great fun, and I think that it changed their attitude, and it certainly changed my attitude about reproduction versus production and how that press can do both and how exciting that really is. Was that Chuck Gershwin and Michael Beacott? Yes, Michael okay. Beacott, yeah. Uh, so, Cindy, can you... Uh, going back a little bit, can you discuss your works, your early offset works? They're unbound, um, flat sheets, and envelopes. Yes. Can you discuss a little bit about why, why this style, why this format, unbound, and also if the envelopes have, or what the significance is as well? Yeah. Oh, nobody's ever asked me that question. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to Tony. <laughs> Um, I'm not exactly sure, oh, well, I'll tell you that my philosophy as an artist uh, is that I, um, I'm a reporter for the time in which I live. So I want to use the images and the techniques of the time in which I live. And I felt offset was that way. And so um, the first things I printed um, this is actually my, one of my very first books, other than the refrigerator thing. And this was, um, it, was a, it was a simple book that's me in graduate school. <laughs> and then slowly I disrobed um, and I asked people, who, women I knew, this was in 1968. I didn't know about feminism. I didn't know anything about that, but I asked women I knew to write something for me about their love. 
So this is a really early book. Was and that before the woman's? Yes. Yes, it was when I was at uh, RIT. And then um, while I was at RIT, this is the kind of work I was producing that I would put up in critiques. And, um, okay, so this is uh, an offset print called The Beach. You can barely see it because it's so flat. It's my mother at the beach coming out of her car. This is, a, this is an offset print of a book on how to Xerox books. <laughs> this is an offset print on how to Xerox a book plus a kind of a reproduction, store-bought reproduction of a brick wall. <laughs> And, um, oh, I don't, I don't have the potatoes and the bricks, but I tell you, for two years, I had three potatoes, which I changed every three months. I had a bed sheet, and I had four bricks. And I worked with those objects all through graduate school, and it got flatter and flatter. So <laughs> every critique, there'd be all these glorious, you know, etchings and blah, 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 and I'd put up a new potato. <laughs> and, um, you know... I just was in heaven, but nobody else was. But let me tell you, I got all A's in graduate school because they had no idea what I was trying to do. And they thought, she must know something that we don't know. So, yeah. So what was the rest of the question? Just asking you about your oh, early production oh, oh. And, and why. They're unbound. They're loose sheets. Yeah. So in my reporting of life, um, my my, this is part of my, I, I only have a few minutes here, but should I go to, this was part of my thesis, and um, it's called An Organization of Printed Material. And I had to write a paper to use this type, which is the original Baskerville from the Baskerville Foundry, you know, very old. And um, they stood over me like mother hens. It was just like, oh my God. So then anyway, um, at that time I called myself Fat Heart. And then my next name was Northern California Industrial and Business News. And during those times I was involved with Ray Johnson's New York Correspondence School. So a lot of that was about making prints to send out to people in the correspondence school. So um, this has offset letterpress. So this is getting used to the kind of imagery that should be done in what manner. Offset, offset letterpress, of course, the bedsheet over the books. Anyway. So, um, you know, I have tons and tons of these. I'm just going to go to this one, which was one of the first books I printed at the women's building. And this is called The Sporting Life. And this particular image was a test image set out, sent out by A.B. Dick to learn <laughs> how to use a specialty screen. So, so this is silkscreen. Offset, and you see how the book 
I mean, I don't need to explain it to you, but the book's been damaged with crayon marks. So that's why that silk screen. This is uh, offset letterpress letter with a glossy silk screen. Uh, silk screen offset. Okay, so uh, then I got into, you know, I was living in LA and I became a commercial illustrator. I was very, very seduced by Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> And I did, my first big project was the Go-Go's cover, which some of you might remember from uh, Beauty and the Bee. And that was a combination of some offset techniques and some other stuff. And then I used all these printing techniques to do a bunch of album covers and movie posters. And then uh, felt like such a sellout that I moved to Tennessee. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Anyway, so I'm going to just show you one more thing. This, oh, well, you can see them later, but this is one of the more L.A. books when I was being seduced and getting ready to have my children, and I would have my babies in a little pouch while I'm running me off that press, you know? <laughs> probably getting the fumes into their brains, but. Okay, so this is called, Hey You, My Way is Best. We can all relate to. So I was also working as a camera person. This came through my hands. I thought, could there be more of a middle America picture? I think it was for um, some, like, magazine in the, the supermarket. Everybody had this in their house, particularly when you went into Tennessee or wherever. And then, and this is an illustrator from the, it is from the New York Times. So I thought a lot about this because I, I like this style of illustration and I interpreted it in my offset way, but here I am taking, and I put his name down there, taking this illustrator and calling it my work. But I felt in combination with these other kind of stories from my time, it made sense. So that's that. All right. Um, Patty, can you talk a little bit about um, the kind of the foundation of Borowski and how that came to be uh, at University of Arts? I can. Um, I was at uh, SUNY Purchase, and Ed Coker was the dean. And then Ed Coker went to the University of the Arts, which had been PCA. And um, he was friends with a fellow named Irv Borowski, who started a printing press operation in his garage uh, when he was a teenager and end up, ended up printing the TV Guide. And so you can imagine the kind of resources he then had at his disposal, uh, because he sold TV Guide to Annenberg, and um, Ed was a friend of his and really wooed him into making the Borowski Center um, for, uh, I don't know, for book arts. And so, or edition printing. I get it mixed up with SUNY. But the, it still exists. It's still operating. We hold classes in there. And Irv um, Borowski bought everything. A $90,000 Heidelberg Press and the state-of-the-art camera facilities, plate makers, and we renovated the 
top four. Luckily, our dean uh, was in favor of it because Ted was the provost, so he had no choice. But uh, <laughs> we, we used the we used his office as our um, Borowski Center, and um, the idea was that several departments would use the Borowski Center for their own purposes. Uh, so the graphic design department, the photo department. Um, people in publications and um, the printmaking department uh, all used the Borowski Center. We had a grant for visiting artists to come in and print. And my job was to teach offset classes uh, and to print for visiting artists, either books or prints. Chuck Gershwin, who Rebecca worked with, his job was to print for graphic design and photography. And if uh, a visiting artist was a photographer, he printed for them. Um, and it was really a wonderful, wonderful situation. Chuck uh, really worked with all of us to design the Borowski Center more like a commercial print shop. And um, I worked with making it suitable for students to work in. And um, it was really a lovely, a lovely group of people to work with. Um, That's great. And the Borowski Center is for the people that don't know. I'm sorry. The University of the Arts. Um, has a, this center that is not committed to any department um, called the Borowski Center. It's an offset facility. That's that's all that it has in there, or offset um, offset equipment. And we, at the same time, because of uh, Ed Coker, we were starting the book arts printmaking program. Uh, so I had already worked with Ed starting for the MFA book arts program at SUNY Purchase. So now I was working with him and Lois Johnson. Um, for the book arts program, and Mary Phelan, I should mention her name, um, for the MFA book arts printmaking program at the University of the Arts. And so the Borowski Center facility was really for them to be able to use it, not to print on the Heidelberg. We didn't let many students print on the Heidelberg. Brad Friedman, who came prepared, and Lori Spencer, who I'd had as a student at SUNY, but really, we ran the we ran the press, and the students came in and did everything else. They made they made the plates and everything prior to the plate making. So it was an integral part of the MFA Book Arts printmaking program um, that started in 1988, and the press also arrived in 1988. Uh, and just before we uh, go to Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about the book of neglects? Okay. So I also had time, sometimes, to print my own work, but uh, sadly, at, in 1988, I also delivered my first child, and in 1990, my second child. And so this was the book, I'll pass it around, of neglects that talks about being a uh, professor, an administrator, a, a printer, and a mother and wife. And if you look at the back of it, you can see the key here that tells you that white is not neglected, but blue is completely neglected. And so it's, it reads like a, uh, I, I was raised Irish Catholic, and you had to examine your conscience every week. And the nun would read the Examination of Conscience book, and she would say, did you talk back to your parents today? Did you neglect to help your siblings today? And so I wrote the book of neglects to kind of look like the Examination of Conscience, and uh, so it says, I neglected my job today. And you can see that I did my job very well on uh, Monday, because I have class on Monday. And so I was nothing neglected there. But I neglected my art today. That was yellow and 
that is uh, slightly neglected, so I must have done something. And it goes down until my friends are neglected completely almost all the time. And um, my children were never neglected on the weekends. <laughs> so um, anyway, it goes all the way around to the week. And I'll pass it around, and you can take a look and get a laugh. But this was a uh, mother of two toddlers and um, busy working at the same time. So if somebody wants to, thanks, Diane. I printed that at the Borowski Center. And I have to tell you that I... Printed, I printed it myself. I had someone help me with the Quark, which was the program to make the text. Um, and then I made the prototype, cutting all the little windows. But so you aren't too impressed. I then packed up my children and went to the beach and had left for my, with my very competent graduate students a <laughs> prototype <laughs> and two checks. <laughs> and when I came back, all 350 of them were cut and folded Beautifully, I still have not made that money back, but <laughs> it was a, it was great to come back and see this beautifully made uh, books. I, I always say I don't live up to my own standards as a bookbinder um, because I'm a really good printer, and that's enough. <laughs> uh, Rebecca, can you talk a little bit about uh, Chicago Books mm -hmm. and working at Chicago Books and maybe some of the people that you worked with? Mm -hmm. So Chicago Books was, um, it came out of a bunch of us students that were at the Art Institute, and that was started by Conrad Gleber, Gail Rubini, and Jim Snitzer. And um, then, sort of in conjunction with that, there was my collaborator, Miles DeCoster, that we had started Permanent Press. And so we kind of collaborated together by um, renovating a space um, on Wabash Avenue. And this is in the 70s. Yeah, in the 70s, so like Artemisia Gallery starting to make that whole Wabash Avenue gallery row start to happen. And so we renovated the backspace for the press, which I ran, and uh, would invite visiting artists. And then that was run by Chicago Books. And then the front part of the building we renovated as a gallery. And that was run by Permanent Press, myself and Miles DeCoster. And we would invite artists to um, exhibit work, and then we would make printed pieces to go with the work as well. Um, so... Yeah, what else do you want me to talk about that? Um, I think that's probably enough. I know, okay. didn't Phil Zimmerman come as a, like an intern or something like that? When yes. He so Phil Zimmerman from um, Space Heater Press came as an um, intern, and all of Chicago books took off. They went somewhere. <laughs> and so Phil and I were left alone, and it was really delightful to teach him how to run the press then, and he just flew with it and made amazing work after that. So, yeah, so I think that's really important because Phil Zimmerman's also a really wonderful printer, but knowing the foundation and kind of where we learned it, I think is uh, really special. So I know we're running out of time a little bit. Before we open it up for Q&A to the audience, I thought I'd give our um, panelists an opportunity to ask each other a question, if you have any, uh, before we open it up to the audience. Yes, I have a question. I wrote it down somewhere, and I forget where I wrote it. All right. Well, I have a question for Rebecca. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the hair book? Oh, okay. Oh, yes. Okay, well, um, and that was, um, I, I printed that at the Tyler Offset Workshop, and I was hand-making separations in a camera, 
All right, so again, this whole idea that color separations were this real high quality and that we would send them out and stuff like that. I said, I can do this myself, and so I can do it in a camera. And so, of course, Michael and Chuck were appalled by this because it wasn't of the exact greatest quality. Um, but that piece to me was really about uh, questioning uh, that once we hold something that's printed, we believe in the truth of it. We go, yeah, it's a book. It must be real. It was published and stuff like that. And so I was really working with the idea of questioning what was a book for and was it factual and to really question um, that, that product, that object that we all so imbue so much meaning into and so much trust because we believe it's the truth. And so I was really interested in the book of hair of pushing that envelope of what's true. You know, and so I made up a whole bunch of tribes um, and made up a bunch of information about hair and how it functions so, um, in our society and stuff like that. So it was completely made up. And it was interesting getting then um, orders from different museums <laughs> or schools thinking that they were going to get something that was very um, intellectual and a lot of, and they were like, this is all made up. This isn't real. What is this? And so it did what exactly I wanted it to do then. I wanted people to question the validity of the printed piece. Right. Uh, no, I don't have a question. Well, I'm going to make a comment and maybe a question. Um, I think it's just real interesting that we have a lot of overlaps, but we also have slightly different, I mean, our work looks different, mm -hmm. and we have different ways that offset has fed into the course of our lives and our work. So, I mean, I would say, and I'll start with why. I mean, you've heard about the flatness. Okay, that's over. But um, I look at offset as being the way I record or have recorded periods of my life. And what you said, Rebecca, about the, which we haven't really gotten into, the democratic multiple, which is a whole big discussion about offset. Because of the women's building, and because of the democratic multiple, I feel that my books in looking at society have become more and more political. Mm -hmm. And it brought me on a course where I am now, where I'm only using seven line wood type mm. and seeing that as the most pedestrian, um, the democratic. Print. You you write it, you post it, and that's it. So it's kind of brought me to that point. So my question to you is how has Offset filtered through your life and brought you to where you are now? It's a big question. I don't <laughs> <laughs> well, I like the, I like the reference to um, democratic multiples, and it's really what I'm impressing, trying to impress upon my students now that um, the use of the multiple is really very important. Well, if you're doing an installation, but also if you just want to leave your mark. So we've had students who will make, you know, little one-sheet books like this, 
and then give them a library number and go to a library, for example, Yale, and insert them, insert it into the stacks. Um, I had another, I had another, can't find it in the catalog, of course. Um, and then I had another student who printed, and I didn't bring any of those, but these little messages of uh, love on tra public transportation. And she would plant those little pieces of paper on benches at the subway or at a bus stop. Um, a, a little romantic story in, in the hectic city life, um, just something yeah. kind of uplifting. And all of these, you know, they funded it themselves, but um, all of these things were for distribution to, as Rebecca pointed out, people, we, we didn't even know who they were, and we didn't know what they thought of them, of it when they got them. And that to me was the best about Offset. Most, many of my books and the books that I brought here are looking like very professional, you know, beautiful book arts, but that's because all the ones that were kind of renegade and passed out have been passed out. And that's, I think, the real beauty of being able to make 350 right. copies of the time. And perhaps it fueled the whole zine movement. I would say, yeah. You know, we, we now have a book art zine show, which is, or festival, and that's great to have the real down and dirty mm -hmm. with the, you know, elegant. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the zine movement has really come because the internet changed everything. You know, we want to say digital changed everything. Uh -uh. It was really the internet. <laughs> you know, so all of a sudden we can distribute anything, anywhere. The things that we had been thinking about, the, the democratic multiple, has been shifted and changed then completely mm -hmm. by the internet. And so I find that has been a real interesting release of offset printing of what it can mean and what it can do because a lot of the whole issue about distribution has been taken over by the internet. Social like, media. Like fake news, we could have fake offsets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know that um, it's 10 minutes to 8. Um, so I'd like to open it up for questions from the audience uh, before we break for the reception. If there are any questions, Karina. Hi, Or how easy it is to distribute that to someone who doesn't know. 
Well, first of all, you have to make friends with the paper companies near you and call them up and say, you have any leftover broken boxes that I can come and pick up in my station wagon? And then you just go there and they give you all their different color wacky papers and you give them to your students. Um, and so, and their students, so they get, they, the only thing they have to pay for then is the plate because we give them the inks. And if they're in a class, we're printing for them. And uh, we try to keep it as cheap as possible, but it, it's a challenge because you can put it on your computer for nothing. Um, so it depends on if they like that tangible piece rather than the piece made of light. And the um, illustration students in particular really want those zines. And we have a course called book production, and they make either you know fine art sort of books or they might make a zine. And, um, they do foot the bill themselves because they want it on all the same paper and things like that. It's not easy having something printed uh, in a, on a printing press, even at a university. It's expensive because the materials are expensive and the, and the labor costs are expensive. But one thing I do have to say is that there are so many schools that now have small presses. So I was invited to be a visiting artist for a year at MICA, Maryland Institute College of Art, the museum school up in Boston. They all have these little presses just hidden away. And because they were so interested in, in sustaining that whole um, medium, they were throwing money at us. Here give the students all the paper that they wanted. And students would walk away with, what am I going to do with this thousand prints? You know, which was always confusing to them. But I think that as offset printings, especially smaller uh, presses, are becoming more dinosaurs, uh, academia is starting to buy up those things and put them in printmaking studios. So I think that there is more access now, quite frankly, to uh, being able to run smaller presses yourself because schools have had them donated to them or they have purchased them. So I think there's actually a lot more access. You know, going into Tyler where there's just this big press and it was like, uh, <laughs> and you turn that on, you know, that you really had to do a lot of technical learning before you could do it while now the places like I mentioned I was like yeah turn that part, that thing on and teaching students how to run it. When you say small presses are you talking duplicators are you talking Bryso are you talking actual presses or um, so like equipment? Uh, ATF uh, the Chief okay. 17s and Bryso presses okay. and stuff like that yeah it's just becoming and I do think that there is the shift the zine culture that's starting to come up people are starting to appreciate the printed piece again because there is a difference between the digital thing. Digital does not have its own personality. It can mimic anything. It can look like a silk screen. It can look like a blueprint. It can look like a photograph. It can look like anything. Offset printing, the kinds of things you can do, um, gloss overprinting, you know, overprinting multiple times, there's a... a, a, a a feeling to it that's really true to that medium that digital will never have because there's no true to the medium. Digital does not have a personality. <laughs> it's only reproduction. All right. So, and and that's I think a big difference between that digital print and that offset print. I think it's advanced. See, I have a slightly different I think take on it that if you're going to use offset and offset technology. 
it's an antique print now. Offset is just about dead, really. Really? Well, uh, I still. <laughs> who, who has an offset press? Commercially. Who, who has an offset press in a school or a nonprofit institution? Uh, well, I mean, my Chicago God. has it, but right. they're going to lose it in two years. Right. That center is going to shut down, and Brad Freeman is going to retire. Okay. So MICA does still have their press. The um, press. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, didn't they have it when you were in there? It was in printmaking. No. I, 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 I agree with what you're saying about schools buying them up. I mm -hmm. think that's going to happen. But I think if you're talking about uh, 2018, you're not talking offset. You're talking about that mushy quality of digital. That's what this era is about. So if you want to talk about today, you use the technology of today. That's the way I see it. If your imagery is out today. If you want to talk about the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, great. Use Offset. Or you want to talk about Oklahoma or something. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Any, uh, la any last questions from the audience before we break for the reception? It's 8 o'clock now. Yeah, we can actually continue this conversation. I have one more comment um, because I, I wanted to get this in. That the thing that I'm most proud of, because this is a women in print, um, is that I, the, my um, my protege were always women. So after me at the University of the Arts, uh, when I became an administrator, Laurie Spencer, who had been my student and then worked with Chuck Gershwin, she took over as master printer in the Borowski Center. And then when she became an administrator, she's now my boss, uh, School of Art, um, Amanda D'Amico, who was both of our students, um, she took over as the master printer in the Borowski Center. And it's really a legacy of women in offset artist books and uh, prints that I'm really, that, I feel like that's my biggest accomplishment. Yeah, and Amanda couldn't make it tonight. I invited her and yeah, she put she was away. Um, and also to that regard, there are a number of other women offset printers who are not here this evening. Sally Alitalo, Joan Lyons, uh, Lori Spencer and Amanda D'Amico, Gail Rubini, Helen Douglas, and Laurel Beckman. Uh, who else did I leave out? Carol is here. Yes. Carol Chen. Uh, former, former offset. Well, I... That counts. Yeah, that counts. So... Uh, why don't we go ahead and break for the reception, continue the conversations, and thank you all for coming this evening. <laughs>